Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. While they're heading out, let me tell you, we're going to be continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. Today we're in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And for those of you who are keeping pace, we only have three more chapters and then we're done with 2 Samuel. You're probably wondering, what are we going to do after 2 Samuel? I'll just tell you, we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians and we'll start working there. So whet your appetite for a fun New Testament book. But this morning, even though we're working our way through 2 Samuel, this is not going to be a message that's business as usual. Like This is a different style of message. Because 1 and 2 Samuel are typically rather chronological. 1 Samuel is the next story, essentially, in the life of King Saul. Then King Saul dies at the end of the book, and you get to 2 Samuel. And it's all about what's the next story about King David. And they just keep following along. And just so you know, the chronological stories of King David came to an end last week in chapter 20. That's where we saw David was able to get his kingdom back after Absalom, after Absalom's coup. But we noticed in the summary of his kingdom there at the end, compared to the summary of his kingdom right before the Bathsheba incident with Uriah, it's a different summary. There's this line in his first kingdom summary that's missing in his second kingdom summary. That line in the first kingdom summary is it began with this, and David was king and he reigned with justice and equity. But when you get to the second kingdom summary, after he comes back, after Absalom's death, that line is missing. It just begins with Joab was in charge of the army. And as we learned last week, while David did get back his kingdom, he wasn't really as in charge as he looked. He was more of a figurehead king in many ways at that point. And Joab was in charge. And we saw last week, he was not the kind of guy you want in charge. He was sort of a thug. He had no problem killing people in cold blood. He did that to Abner. He did that to Amasa against the king's will directly. And he also would be willing to take down and kill an entire city just to find one person. So he was a, a thug. And if you're looking to find out what's the next chronological part of David's story, you actually go to 1 Kings. Because 1 Kings picks up at the very end of David's reign, and then it's the transfer of David's kingdom to his son Solomon. And you wonder, okay, well we have four more chapters in 2 Samuel. Uh, the chronological part is over with. You'd have to jump to 1 Kings to pick up on that. What are these four chapters doing at the end? What they are is they're sort of a summary about David's reign. It's looking back on his reign and sort of saying, what can we learn from his kingdom and from his life? And one of the things we can learn in these last four chapters is that if anything good happened in David's life, it really wasn't because David was so great. It was because God was so great. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, boy, that's an amen, isn't it? Anything good happens in our life. It's not because we're so great. It's because God has been so good to us through Jesus Christ and in so many other ways. Now, by the earlier chapters, we're all chronological in order. These final four chapters are what I would call thematic in order. 
They're not, like I said, chronological. They're looking back on David's reign and trying to see sort of the themes that we can learn from him. And they're put together in the structure of what's called a Hebrew inclusio. And as soon as I said that, a bunch of you just glazed right over. Okay, Hebrew inclusio. Kurt, don't you know, it's negative 18 degrees out. It was hard enough to get to church. And now you're giving me a Hebrew lesson at church? Well, before you glaze over and drift away, Hebrew inclusio is actually a very simple thing. And it's used not just in these final four chapters, but it's used all over the Old Testament and also used in some portions of the New Testament. And once you see what it is, all of a sudden you can understand how these writers worked. Let me show you what inclusio is. It simply means what you start with is connected to what you end with. What you go to next is connected to something later, but it's all sort of put together in these kind of relational things with the center point being the main point you're trying to make. Let me show you how this works together if you look at the final four chapters. Take the next slide. So you have chapter 21. The first 14 verses are about King Saul's sin caused a famine. But look what the ending verses in chapter 24 about. King David's sin caused a plague. You see how they're related? You go in a little further. 2 Samuel 21, verses 15 through 22. It's a list of David's mighty men and their victories. Go to the end and back up one a little bit. 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 39. It's a list of David's mighty men and their victories once again. You go into the center. 2 Samuel 22, the first 51 verses. It's David's praise to God for his faithfulness in the past. And then you go to chapter 23, the first seven verses, and it's David's praise to God for his faithfulness in the future. What's this all about? Who's really the one who's faithful? God. In the past, in David's life, and he'll still be faithful in the future. Any good thing that happens in David's life is not because David is so great, but because who? God is so great. So that's how these final four chapters construct themselves. Let's go ahead, and we're going to look at um, point A and point B in the Inclusio, which is chapter 21. First of all, about uh, King Saul's sin causing a famine, and then we'll look next at a list of David's mighty men. So we'll start with that. King Saul's sin led to famine and death. That's the first point in your outline. Just to prepare you, these next 14 verses are considered by some Bible scholars the hardest verses in the Bible. Not that they're hard to understand. They're just hard to accept. Because what we're going to see in these verses is we're going to see an unjust war, and we're going to see a famine where a bunch of people die. All kinds of people are dying, and you're like, it was an unjust war, and it was a natural disaster. God, why are you letting that happen? Incidentally, one of the biggest lessons we're going to see in what we're going to study this morning is this. If we could understand how much suffering our sin brings to other people in the world, especially to those we love, we would run from our sin 
rather than be tempted into it. If we could understand how much suffering our sins brings to other people in the world, especially those we love, we would run from our sin rather than be tempted into our sin. That's one of the big ideas I want you to remember. Something else, uh, these verses we're going to study are going to tell us that David was not guilty of any wrongdoing when it comes to the death of King Saul, King Saul's sons, or even King Saul's grandsons. Remember David, where we saw this at the end of 1 Samuel, he had nothing to do with the death of King Saul. Many times he could have taken King Saul out, but he kept saying, I refuse to put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. And when King Saul and his sons died at Mount Gilboa, the second, her first Samuel tells us David was 100 miles south. wasn't even near that. And what we're going to find here is that now King Saul's grandsons, a whole bunch of them are going to die. And David is not the one who really is the reason they die. The reason they die is actually because of King Saul's sin. It sort of comes back from the grave and haunts his grandson's life. Let's begin. First verse. Now, there was famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. It says the famine took place in the days of David. So if you're looking in the chronological history of the earlier parts of uh, 2 Samuel, David became king in 2 Samuel 5, so this famine took place sometime after 2 Samuel 5. Later on, we're going to see a reference to Mephibosheth. He's in David's world when that famine took place. Mephibosheth came in at 2 Samuel chapter 9. So this famine took place sometime after 2 Samuel chapter 9, before the end of 2 Samuel chapter 20, though we don't know exactly when. Well, we start to ask, why was there a famine? And David was asking, why was there a famine? And David knew things that sometimes we forget, which is that God's in charge of everything, even the weather. And God's in charge of the rain. God's in charge of the snow. And God's in charge of mornings, even when you wake up, they're negative 18. He's in large and in charge of everything. And if there was no rain falling on Israel, God's, it's not happening by chance. God is behind it. And God has a reason for it. And interestingly for Israel, God had said that if they were in a good relationship with him, he would be blessing them and things would go well agriculturally. But if they had sinned against him, and they would suffer agriculturally. Now, I'm not saying that any time there's a natural disaster that it's God specifically judging our country for our sin. Not out of the possibility. Um, that may be true. But we know when it comes to ancient Israel in the time of David that very specifically the agricultural results were tied to their faithfulness to their God. Let me show you. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 through 6. If you faithfully obey the voice of your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Blessed shall, be, shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. 
and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. You follow me in ancient Israel, things will generally go well for you guys. But then you go a little further into Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. If ancient Israel walked away from the Lord, things would not go well for them financially. And they would have problems with flocks and herds. And if you continue a little further in this chapter in Deuteronomy, it gets very specific about famine and rain. And the, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So one of the ways that God would discipline his people if they sinned against him is you aren't going to get any rain and things will not go well. And after three years of not getting rain, David starts to scratch his head and says, maybe there's something that we've done wrong. Maybe we've sinned against God. Maybe God is disciplining us in this time. And at that time, when you wanted to find out you know, if God had something to say on an issue, you went to the priest, you talked to the priest, the priest went to God and gave you an answer. And that's what David did. And God, being very gracious, was quick to answer him and tell him what the problem was. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. King Saul, David's predecessor, attempted to Gideonites, or excuse me, attempted to genocide an entire race of people known as the Gibeonites. This is called Hitler and the final solution with the Jews. That's the same thing. Saul is trying to genocide an entire race of people. And as a result, and notice this is not just Saul individually, this is Saul and his house. They were involved in mass murder, and the guilt of that murder still hangs on their neck and on the, the shoulders of the nation, which is why they're not being blessed, which is why they're in a, they're in a famine. Now, you may wonder, who are these Gibeonites? I don't know much about these guys. The Gibeonite story starts in Joshua chapter 9. You may remember this. Joshua was conquering the promised land like he was supposed to do. And the Gibeonite people are in the promised land, and they realize that they're not going to be around too much longer once Joshua gets to them. So they send some people to Joshua, and they play a little trick. The people are wearing old shoes. They have moldy bread and and worn out water sacks, and they look totally dilapidated. They come to Joshua and they say, Oh, we're from a far away place, and we've heard about you and how great you are. We want to make a peace treaty with you. And Joshua doesn't bother to even pray about that one. He's like, Oh, sure, far away, no big deal. Enters into a peace treaty with them, only to find out the next day they're not from far away, they're actually their neighbors. 
And then Joshua is left with the dilemma. They made a peace treaty that they swore to keep in the Lord's name. They were tricked into it, but the Israelites decided they would be men and women of their word. Rather than destroying the Gibeonites, they would let the Gibeonites survive, except they would be public servants. They would be drawers of water. They were to be choppers of wood, it says, for the Israelites. Now, that happened generations before. But the Gibeonites are now sworn to be protected by the Israelites. King Saul, you know, not just King Saul, but it says King Saul and his household had the Gibeonites, and they said, well, we're not going to keep that promise. We're going to destroy you. We're going to genocide you. We're going to get rid of you. And you wonder, why would you do this, you and your family? A couple answers. Number one, I was thinking about this. I didn't find this anyplace else, but it just sort of struck me when I was studying. Where is Saul's hometown? Anybody remember? Trivia. King Saul of what? Gibeah, right? He was from Gibeah. These people were in his hometown. He's killing hundreds, maybe thousands of them. What do you think he would be doing that for? He and his family. Take more land. Get more power. Get more stuff. That's what he's doing. And the other thing I want to remember, remember is, notice this is not King Saul alone, but this is also his household. As I thought about this, this is so much like King Saul, killing the wrong people. Remember when he was first made king, he was told to kill the Amalekites. And did he kill the Amalekites? No, he couldn't kill the people he's supposed to kill. But then later on, he decides to kill all of the priests at Nob. He kills the wrong people. Like, it's not a good idea to kill all the priests of God, right? That would really get you on God's wrong side, I would think. He's got this all backwards. And now, he's killing all the people that Israel, in God's name, has sworn to protect for generations. Once again, killing the wrong people at the wrong time. But no wonder God is sort of upset. And then we read this. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Saul decided he would get rid of these foreigners. That was his idea. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? How do we get out of this situation where God is disciplining us because King Saul and his family has killed hundreds to thousands of you? And the Gibeonites said to him, Well, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. The Gibeonites recognized to make things right, after hundreds of thousands of them have died, it's not a matter of just giving them some money. You don't give them $5, 
you can't give them $5 million. Because as soon as you say, things are made right, if I give you enough money after I killed somebody, what is that doing to the person's life? Trivializing it? Putting a monetary value on someone's life? And I'm sorry, $5 million isn't nearly worth as much as a human life. Also, look what the Bible says in this area, back in Numbers 35, 31. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. The only proper response to someone who is a murderer is capital punishment. That's the Bible for you. Because saying you could just give somebody money to make things even or fair is trivializing human life. In addition, notice what the Gibeonites said. It's not our job to take an Israelite's life. In other words, even though Saul has killed hundreds of thousands of us, it's not our job to try and get revenge and kill hundreds of thousands of you. That's not what we're supposed to do. You think about this within Islam right now. You know that Islam, one of their focuses is we have a long memory. We remember how somebody from a different ethnic group did something that hurt our family generations ago. And even though that was a hundred years ago, we feel it's right for us to get revenge and kill people today. The Gibeonites knew better. Nope, we cannot do that. And David says, and he said this, so what what do you say that I shall do for you? And then they said this. They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Obviously, this is where the text starts to get really hard. The Gibeonites asked for seven of Saul's relatives, seven of Saul's grandsons, we say, and they are going to die for the sin of what Saul did. That doesn't feel fair, does it? But let's think about this a little bit. Remember, when it came to genociding, hundreds of thousands of Gibeonites in his own town. Was it just Saul that did this, or was it Saul and his household? His household was involved in this. Secondly, think of the number that the Gibeonites asked for. They only asked for seven of Saul's sons. How many Gibeonites probably died if Saul was trying to genocide an entire race of people off the face of the earth? Hundreds to thousands of them. Now, why did they choose seven? Most likely because seven in the Bible is represented as a number of completeness. It's like if you want to find the full number, we would say, well, let's go with seven. And you say, well, why don't they just give the Gibeonites some money? Remember, we just pay them some money and call it even. But didn't we just read that you can't give money to ransom someone's life? 
because people's lives are worth more, far more than money. And the only proper response to a murderer is what? Capital punishment. Read this again, Numbers 35, 33. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it. Notice this except by the blood of the one who shed it. That's the only option. Somebody's got to die. Maybe a couple people have to die, and they have to come from Saul's household. Well, Saul's not available anymore. He's already dead. But there are other members of his household who were involved ultimately in this who are not dead. Before we get to the execution of these sons, all of a sudden we have a little bit of a contrast. Well, we've seen that King Saul is what we call a promise breaker. He broke the covenant promise that Joshua made to the Gibeonites. David is actually the opposite. He's a promise keeper. He's going to keep the promise he made to his, to his friend Jonathan about sparing his son. But the king spared Mephibosheth the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan and the son of Saul. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Methanite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. So David chose two sons from one family and five sons from another family. Rizpah, we originally met her in 2 Samuel chapter 3. She was King Saul's concubine. She had two sons, and one of them, by the way, was named Mephibosheth. That's not the same Mephibosheth as Jonathan's son. Same name, but different person, so don't get the confused. And you know how that happens when you have a bigger family and you start to have extended grandchildren. You have a mark on one side of the family and a mark in another part of the family. That's what this is. Not the same person. And the other uh, five that die, they come from Merib. Merib is Saul's daughter, one of Saul's daughter. She loses five of her sons. The other daughter, by the way, is named Michael. She never had any children. Uh, so this is definitely a sort of a closure of what's going on with Saul's family and Saul's line. And if you think this is hard, it's about to get worse. We read this. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them by the heavens, from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. For a long time, a really long time, Rizpah, Saul's concubine, put herself through a living hell. It's true. She camped out right by those bodies as they hung in the air. And she kept the vultures, she kept the animals from eating them. 
not just her own sons, but the other five sons. She protected them day and night. Now, we don't know how long this took place, but we can make sort of a guess. They were put to death at the beginning of the barley harvest. In Israel, that's around April. And then she protected them, it says, all the way until the rains fell. The rainy season begins the end of September, beginning of October. Around six months long, she lived outside and protected those dead bodies from desecration or being destroyed by animals. You say, well, why did the Bible include this? I think there's two reasons. One is to show the kind of mother she was. What an incredibly dedicated mother to her own children, even in the midst of loss. But I think the other reason that's there, and this is the main reason, is for us to understand the kind of pain, heartache, and sadness that was in her life. She had lost Saul, and now she had lost her two sons by Saul. If Saul had been able to understand the amount of pain and suffering and loss that his sin would bring to people in the world, people he loved, and especially those close to him, he would have ran from his sin rather than walked into his sin. Folks, think of this. Not only did his attempt to genocide the Gibeonites bring all kinds of sadness and death to hundreds or thousands of Gibeonites, but it resulted in a famine of his own nation that experienced it for three years of people starving to death. It also resulted in seven of his own grandsons dying for what he primarily led. Grandparents, you would do anything to protect your grandkids, right? Imagine realizing that what you did in your life would end up resulting in seven of your own grandchildren's death. Imagine thinking about your wife, Rizpah, being so sad that she would stay outside for six months protecting the last bit of legacy she had behind the dead bodies of her sons. If Saul could have seen all this suffering, he would have run from his sin rather than drawn into it. And folks, while Saul couldn't see that suffering, we can through the Bible. We can see what it brought about. And I think there's a simple challenge for us. In life, when you find yourself tempted into a sinful choice, it always looks so good. It looks so easy. Well, it'll just be something I engage in. Maybe if there's consequences, just I will suffer those things. Absolutely not, folks. The consequences of sin will reach out and touch all kinds of people around you. And most of all, it will impact those you love. Knowing that, I think, is something that helps us turn away from sin. The story continues. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square in, of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. 
and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. After David saw all the kind of honor and love that Rizpah gave to Saul's family, he was challenged. And he exhumed King Saul's bones and King Saul's son's bones, which were over at Jabesh Gilead. And he took those bones along with these grandson's bones and all gave, gave them all a proper funeral and a proper burial in their family tomb. And at that point, that is when God relinquished the famine. Now what can we learn from this very interesting, very challenging section of Scripture? I have them down your outline. Number one, Saul, not David, was responsible for the death of King Saul's sons and grandsons. 2 Samuel 16, you remember when David was leaving Jerusalem because he knew Absalom was coming to him. You remember that there was a man named Shammai, and this is what he said. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And Shammai accused David of trying to wipe out Saul's family line. Did David do that? David refused to put his hand out against Saul. The Philistines killed Saul and his sons. When it came to Saul's grandsons, David's hands are essentially tied. It was Saul's sin and Saul's family sin of trying to genocide the Gibeonites, which ended up bringing about his grandson's death. Remember, David couldn't pay the Gibeonites money. People in Saul's family had to die for what they had done. David was just trying to save the land. It's not like he was trying to kill off Saul's family. Secondly, Sin brings suffering to many more people than just ourselves. We see that coming screaming out of this text. Saul's grandsons died and suffered because of Saul's own sin. And incidentally, that's not just something that happened in Saul's life. But isn't it something that happened in David's life? I have that as point B. David murdered Uriah. And remember he said that it should be paid back fourfold. And David would then lose four of his own sons. First of all, the son conceived with Bathsheba. Second of all, Amnon, his oldest son. Third of all, Absalom, who died. And when we get to 1 Kings, the fourth and final son will die with his Adonijah. So David's sin with Uriah, or with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah ended up touching his sons as well. So this is not just something we see with King Saul. We see it also with King David. It's a principle that we can learn. Number three, it says the sins of a leader bring great suffering to the people. And I was going to make a little edit. I would make this edit in the note. It should be the personal sins of a leader bring great suffering to the people. This is why I add the line personal in there. Because David's attempt to genocide the Gibeonites, or excuse me, <laughs> Saul's attempt to genocide the Gibeonites, along with Saul's family. It was something they did personally in their own town to try and expand influence and control. But who suffered for three years of famine? The entire nation. Today, we often hear of leaders and great sin in their private life. And then they get in front of us and say, 
Well, that doesn't affect my public service. Oh, yes, it does. Maybe it may not directly affect your public service through you, but it does affect your public service as God deals with you. That's exactly what happened here. Number four, God is sovereign over natural disasters. It was God is the one who created the famine. And he even created this negative 17 or 18 degrees today. And number five, God remembers the promises we make before him. When it came to this covenant that Joshua had made generations before with the Gibeonites, Saul's response was, that was old. That was a long time ago. We can forget that and move on. Did God forget the promise that, he, that was made before him by his people? Absolutely not. God expected that promise to be kept. I think about that. Isn't that true for us? Sometimes we think about a promise we've made in the past and how easy it would be to just forget it in the present. Even think about the covenant of marriage that we make usually before God in a church with God as our greatest witness. And 30 years down the road, we say, well, life is hard, life is difficult, let's just forget this and move on. But you made a promise before God. And God expects you to keep your word. And he is the witness. God was the witness to the promise in this text. Well, that's point A in the chiastic structure. The next is point B. We'll move through this one a little bit quicker. And it's titled, David Needed a Team. We'll see that David, when it came to all the mighty work and all the great victories that are sort of attributed to him, it's easy to think that David did it all by himself. And the text tells us here very clearly, by the way, David was not alone. He had a great team around him that God used. And if it hadn't been for that great team, David would not have experienced the success he did. Early in David's life, you remember David slew Goliath, the giant. But did you realize there's a lot of other giants that are in the Bible? A lot of other giant Philistines? And David, my friends, was not the only one to slay one. That's what we find out. The first piece of text is this, the death of Ishbi Benob. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. We don't know exactly when this took place. But my guess is this took place sometime either before the Absalom event or slightly after the Absalom event. In the early years, we never read about David growing tired. But at this point, I believe David's a little bit older. And here's the problem with us as we get older, especially guys right? We think we're still 25, but we're not 25. We think we're as strong as we were when we were younger, but we're not as strong and as fit as we were when we are younger. Right, guys? Yeah, and Anthony's like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And this is David. I'm like, guys, we're going to battle. I'm going right in the battle. And he's like, man, I just don't have it anymore. I'm tired. He has his hands on his knees, and when he's exhausted, this is what we read. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. And his spear, by the way, was 300 shekels of bronze. Uh, Goliath's was 600, so it's a little bit, or, excuse me, his spear was, yeah, his spear was about half the size of Goliath's. He's got a new sword, it's super sharp. He sees this as his big opportunity to get David. And then we read this. 
But Abishai, the son of Zerui, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. You think you're young. You're not 25 anymore. You better stay home on these things, guys. We're going to lose you one of these days. Now, Abishai is the one who comes to the uh, rescue. Last week, when I was in our life group, somebody sort of had forgot about who Abishai was. So let me remind you. He was the son of Zerui. Zerui was David's sister. She had two sons, Joab and Abishai. Joab is the commander of David's army. He's younger than David because he's sort of like his sister's children. Abishai is the other brother. And Abishai has a very unique talent. And it's that he's very good at killing people. Have you guys watched some of those Liam Nielsen movies? You know, where they, Liam Nielsen gets into trouble and, and then he, he talks to the guy on the phone. He's like, well, you need to know I have a very unique talent. And it may not, you know, I'm very good at killing people. That's Abishai. First uh, Samuel chapter 16, David has to back him off because he wants to kill a person. Second Samuel chapter 16, David has to back him off because he wants to kill a person. You think you get some distance from a guy like that. But when a giant is attacking you, it's a really good thing to have a guy like Abishai around because he just takes out the giants. And, and part of this, he ends up in second in command of David's army. The next guy is the death of Saph. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibikai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Interestingly, if you look at 1 Chronicles 11, verse 29, which is the parallel passage here, you find that Sibikai became another general in David's army right under Abishai. So like... You know how you get a commander in David's army? Just go kill a giant, it seems like. That's what you get promoted really well. Then we have the death of Lami, Goliath's brother. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jare Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So here we meet Elhanan. But here we meet also a problem. He struck down a guy named Goliath the Gittite. And if you're real sharp, you'll go, wait a minute, isn't that the name of the guy that David struck down in 1 Samuel, Goliath the Gittite? What's he doing getting killed again a second time at the end of David's reign when he was killed when David was a child? And here's where you need a little bit of background. In the Hebrew text, this particular verse has a few... Uh, what I call variants. In other words, there's some ancient texts that are, have a little different way of putting it. This word is translated Bethlehemite. Some manuscripts have a B in the front, which means Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite. Other ancient texts don't have a B in front of it. So some copyists didn't put that in, others did. So if the B is missing, the word would be Lamite, which is a person's name. If the B is present, it's Bethlehemite, which would be a person's or the place or a location. And I'm going to tell you that the ESV has this as a Bethlehemite because that's the way the majority of the texts go, but I believe it's actually the opposite way. I believe it's a person's name. 
which is the minority of the text. And I'll tell you why. If you go to the parallel passage, which recounts the same thing in 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5, says this, And there was again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan the son of Jer struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. That's the answer right there. It's Goliath's brother that he struck down. Last giant for the day is this, the death of what I call good old six fingers. And there was again war at Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, that's David's oldest brother, struck him down. Well, this guy wasn't just extra big. I mean, he had extra fingers and extra toes. But the son of Jonathan's older brother is what struck him down. And we end up with this. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And what is the lesson we should take from this? I think it's really simple. What can we learn? David didn't work alone. He needed a faithful team to accomplish the work God gave him to do. And in the church, we are no different. Folks, if it hadn't been for that faithful team of men around him, Ishbi Benab, that giant, would have taken David's life. When David had to be on the sidelines when he was too old, these other commanders, faithful men that God had put around him, took down giants just like David did. As I thought about this, this is such a picture of the church. We've been given a work to do. We're to reach people with Jesus Christ. You know, the, the, the great commandment, the great commission, <laughs> reaching people with Jesus. It's not a job we can do alone, folks. It's a job God has put us together in teams to do. The team is called the church. And I am super thankful for the team that God has put here at Crosswinds. People who lead worship, and I certainly couldn't do it. People who take offerings. People who make sure there's coffee in the coffee bar in the morning. People who do all kinds of things. People who help with Awana. People who do the construction and build things and build garages and design garages. You know, it's as the team works together that we're able to accomplish the work God has given us to do, which is reaching people in this community with Jesus and reaching people around the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want to say is if you're part of the team, thank you for being part of the team. God is going to use you in amazing ways, just like he used these men around David to kill giants like he just did with David. Second challenge, if you're somebody who just attends Crosswinds, but you haven't been a faithful some faithfully connected and involved with the team of Crosswinds, I'd ask you, get off the sidelines. Get in the game. Step forward and find a way to serve and be used on the team that's trying to reach Jesus. And expect that God will use you in ways you would never imagine or never expect. Like these four men who ended up slaying giants just like David did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for putting us in teams. Thank you for not just using David in an amazing way to slay a Goliath, but using these other men to slay four other giants. 
I thank you that you've given, gifted each of us differently and that you, we come together in a church with the gifts and we're able to do things none of us could do alone. I also thank you that today when it comes to our sin and uh, things being made right for our sin, our children don't have to die. But Jesus died. And he died in our place for our sin. And he forgives us in full. Thank you so much, Jesus, for that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.